So what is the Christmas season all about? And what is it we're really celebrating during the month of December every year? Well, I'm glad you're here today because I want to show you from the Bible what Christmas is really all about. And why it was originally placed on our calendars to celebrate one of the most mind-boggling events in all of history. That God took on flesh and came into our world. You see, Christmas is about the birth of Jesus, if you've missed it. There are other things that are made much of during this month. Christmas is about the birth of Jesus, who came to solve our biggest problem, the sin problem that separates every one of us from a holy God. That's what Christmas is all about, and that's why there are some of these other things going on that I'm certainly not against. I've worked hard to keep the lights in my front yard on. I can't tell you how hard I've worked. Fuses have blown. Things have gotten wet. I'm out there repeatedly in the dark, in the rain, because it matters to me. I am type A. Once I put them out there, I want them to work. But it's beautiful. Lights. Some of the traditions that we have of exchanging gifts and of lights are because God gave us the gift of his son and sent light into our dark world. But so many of our greeting cards today sadden me. Most people, since I'm a pastor, send me the right kind still. I'm sure you're very careful to make sure what it says. I'm sure you spend lots of time. Does does it sound biblical? But so many of the greeting cards that we send and receive today just say something nebulous, like celebrate the wonder and magic of the season. And you do get excited and tingly as some of the gold or silver glitter that's on the front of that card begins to stick to your fingers in a magical way and sprinkle down onto your lap in an unhelpful way that makes you look like a solid gold dancer for the rest of the day. But let's be honest, glitter alone, right, could never sustain any level of wonder and magic during the month of December, let alone for a lifetime. And so that's why I think it's sad that with so many of the greeting cards, when you open them, there are no further instructions as to why we should celebrate or what the substance of our celebration is even all about. And so in many ways, it's not that different than just people rioting out in the streets who are just caught up in the emotion and a lot of them can't remember or never knew why are we out here but I'm a part of this thing with emotions and I just feel like turning over a car and tearing something up or or stepping into Christmas as Elton John sings to us. But no one knows for sure what we're stepping into or why. And so what happens, sadly, is we're left to fill in the blanks for ourselves. And usually when we do that, what it means is that because of all the Lexus and Mercedes And jewelry commercials, you start to say, well, I guess it's that I've got to have the right amount of money to buy some of this wonder and magic. Or when you see the Coca-Cola commercials, maybe I just need the right kind of beautiful friends in a well-lit, beautiful house where everyone has perfectly white teeth and all they do is laugh. Or at least a family 
that is somewhat intact and still speaking to each other so that we can gather for a Christmas meal and exchange some gifts without fighting. But listen to me, when that, any of all that, becomes the definition of Christmas wonder, it leaves most people on the outside looking in at just a select few who seem to have captured this wonder and magic. Here's the good news. The original Christmas wonder was that God sent his son to be the gift for everyone, not just a select few that fit a certain category. In fact, Christmas wonder is how God took on flesh in his son and came down into our world for everyone, especially those who might feel on the outside and see themselves as weak, broken, alienated, especially those that maybe say, this year, or it's been a season now, my life has been ravaged by sorrow, pain, loss, loneliness. But to see the real wonder of Christmas, we have to lay aside most of our greeting cards and open the Bible. And when you do, Oh my goodness, when you open the Bible, you will see that the wonder of Christmas begins in the Old Testament that continually repeated and predicted and promised that Jesus would be born. A Savior is coming. A solution is coming. God is going to do something about all this brokenness and mess and darkness and pain and hurt. The Old Testament is filled with dozens of prophecies predicting the birth of Jesus. Centuries before he was ever born. And the prophecies were saying things that had never been said before. A virgin had never given birth to a son. Because God had never come down to us like this. Emmanuel, God with us not a myth not it's not okay to say well even if it's not true it's inspirational if it's not true it's a joke one of the worst jokes not a myth not a legend not a fairy tale a real boy with skin born to a real young woman probably 13 who was scared in a real city that was bustling and crowded and cold on a real night in history that changed forevermore the course of all mankind. And 700 years before that little baby ever uttered his first cry or was cradled in his mother's arms or was laid in that rough wooden manger, the prophet Isaiah told us what a wonder he would be. When he said in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, you might recognize this, it's still around, praise God. For unto us, unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's 
what the wonder of Christmas is all about. And in the original Hebrew language there, the word wonderful counselor is pele yoetz, a wonder of counsel and authority. That Hebrew word pele or wonder was a word that that describes something that stirred amazement and admiration because it was so set apart and distinguished in a category unto itself. Jesus is a wonder through and through. In a ca- See, in our English translation, something's lost with he's wonderful, true. The scripture's intended to communicate he is a wonder through and through in a category all by himself should should top all other lists that we have of natural and man-made wonders in the world Jesus is the greatest wonder and God gave him to us so in effect Isaiah is talking when he talks about the birth of Christ is talking about one who would supersede all other wonders. But to understand why he's such a wonder, you have to move on from the Old Testament and into the New Testament, where the wonder of Christmas virtually explodes as it begins to explain in greater detail who he is and how he came to solve our biggest problem, that sin problem we all have that separates us from a holy God. The entire New Testament, the second half of the Bible, explains Jesus. But there's one book in particular that we've been digging into as a church family, if you've been with us this month, the book of Hebrews, that in explaining Jesus, understands what a wonder he is and uses the word better, third times as it says he's a better high priest they had high priests we have priests today he's a better high priest who offered a better sacrifice so that we now have a much say it better hope 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 I want you if you have a bible to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4 and you follow along as I begin reading in verse 14. If you don't have a Bible with you, that is not a problem. Just listen attentively as I read about why Jesus is the wonder of Christmas. Hebrews 4, beginning in verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of, only because of Jesus is it now a throne of, say it, grace grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need skip over to chapter 5 verse 7 because it's going to talk about some of what he was doing and why he came in the flesh 
chapter 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Oh, there's so much we could unpack in these verses. But I just want to highlight two of the wonders that transpired when Jesus took on flesh to come into our world. Please know there's far more than two wonders that are surrounding the glorious mystery of the incarnation that God would take on flesh. But I just want to highlight two that you see in our passage. One, he took on flesh and came into our world so that he could sympathize with us. And secondly, so that he could die for us. He had to be made like us to sympathize with us. He had to take on a body to die for us. You see, Jesus has compassion on us. As you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you cannot but be struck by how compassionate and loving and gracious he is with broken sinners. You don't have to wonder how he would treat a sexually immoral person. You get it in John 8. Whereas men and women were ready to throw stones, not him. He was ready to forgive. You get it in John 4 when he meets a woman gathering water at an odd time in the afternoon because she was coming out when no one came for water because she was an outcast. She'd already had four husbands and she was living with a man now. And he did not condemn her, but he offered her living water, life, compassion, Jesus has compassion on us and can sympathize with us because he was made like us when he took on flesh. In other words, we do not have a savior or a God who can't understand what it's like to be us. He knows what it is to be human, to struggle, to suffer, to be abused and betrayed, to feel alienated and lonely and rejected, to bump right up against the ugliness and brokenness of our world. See, I hope you realize all you have to do is read a little bit of history. He did not come into a kinder, gentler world than we have today. It was harsh. It was just as harsh as today. In many ways, much worse. And... He didn't live a cloistered life that was shielded from the messiness and ugliness of sin. And he certainly didn't hide away in some palace or live in a gated community. And unlike LeBron James and other celebrities we have, he was never surrounded by a team of personal assistants or bodyguards. He was surrounded by 12 really doofus disciples who regularly didn't get it, regularly said stupid things, regularly failed him, and then in the end, deserted him. He gets it. He gets it. 
And so he has compassion on us because he lived just like us. Look at what it says in verse 15 again of Hebrews 4. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted as we are yet without sin. That word sympathize, don't make a mistake. It doesn't mean from a distance I just say, oh, bless your heart. Especially in the South, we know what that means. You're stupid and you deserve that. But bless your heart, bless your heart. That is not what it means that he sympathizes with us. Ooh, that Greek word for sympathize is made up of two words, pasco and soon, suffer with. It means someone who knows how to suffer with you. And therefore, he's able to offer, because he shares in your feelings, he is able to offer genuine, heartfelt compassion because he's been there and gets it. Jesus has been here and gets it. Most of us, when we're hurting, I don't want to talk to someone who doesn't get it. I don't want to talk to someone who doesn't really understand what I'm going through. When you cry out to Jesus, you're talking to someone who gets it. He gets it, suffers with us, feels with us. Now, here's the thing I don't want you to do. I don't want you to think, well, whatever, okay. Oh, my goodness. Up until that point in history, you need to understand, read some on your own, and you'll see this. Up until that point in history, please know, there was no concept, no concept of a suffering God who could feel, feel what you feel, or any religion that offered you this kind of God. It simply did not exist. The Jews in that day, for them, their basic idea was that God is holy, separate, high and lifted up and cannot in any way share in any of our experiences. In fact, by very definition of being God, he cannot do so. He doesn't share in any of our experience or feel for us. And the Greeks in that day had lots of gods, but their concept of God was even further removed from any of our human experience. The Stoics were the highest Greek thinkers in that day. And they said this, the Stoic Greek thinkers said that the number one primary attribute of God is apatheia. You might recognize that. The inability, the absolute inability to feel anything. In other words, an apathetic God who does not care and does not feel The other prominent school of thinking in the Greeks was the Epicureans who believed that any God that did exist, they had gods, any God that did exist lived in a protected state of perfect happiness in a place they called the intermundia, space between the worlds. And again, they went on to say, he is completely unaware of our world. It's off his radar. These were the concepts of God. So please understand, into this point of history, in a day that had no concept or category or philosophical place at all for a God who feels and cares for us 
and would suffer with us by stepping into our world comes Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. That is why, friends, Christianity is in a category all by itself. The media loves to drive home to us, try, it's all the same. Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, you choose, Christianity. Folks, there was nothing like this. And there has been nothing new like this since. Christianity is in a category all by itself. Every other religion points the way and gives you a list and says, this is how you could please that God. Here's what you need to do. Only Christianity has a God that took on flesh and comes and meets us where we are. That's the wonder of Christmas. And that's why it's all centered around Jesus. Jesus. But look at what it says in the second half of verse 15. He was one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That Greek word for tempted means more than to be tempted. It means to be pressed, pressured, tested, tried. But let me address what some of you might be thinking, because I do hear it from time to time. And it's this. Now, wait a minute, Brad. If Jesus, there's that phrase, yet without sin. If Jesus never sinned, then he really doesn't know what it's like to be human and to be tempted and tried and pressed like I am. In fact, that means he lived quite a sheltered life and is way out of touch with how I struggle. So how can he help me? I want to answer that objection by quoting C.S. Lewis, who heard the same objection more than 70 years ago. Listen to what he says. Quote, a silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. This is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life. By always giving in. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. You see, Jesus knows the battles that we face far better than we do because he fought the same ones all the way to the end and never gave in. He defeated the monster of sin and temptation every time. So he is more than able to help you. And he knows, he knows what it feels like. But let me point out the second wonder of Jesus taking on flesh in our passage. Jesus became the very source of salvation for us. When he died on the cross in our place. That's exactly what it says in Hebrews 5, 9. Look at it again. He became the source of eternal salvation. Not temporary, 
do this now and it might work. Later on there'll be something else. Or do this and it'll help you, but you could lose it. No, eternal salvation. But I want you to notice the word became. He became the source. In other words, something had to happen beyond that sweet manger scene on that first cold night for him to become the source of eternal salvation. What did Jesus do to become? See, that's why it's important to realize he didn't come primarily to feed the hungry. He did. To heal the sick. He did. To love and connect with the disenfranchised and outcast. He did. But if he'd only done those things and returned to heaven, we'd all still be going to hell. He did something to solve our biggest problem and become the source of eternal salvation. You can see it in verse seven where the author is talking about how Jesus agonized on that night of his death in the garden of Gethsemane, crying out in prayer to his father because he knew he was headed to the cross where he would bear the punishment and the weight and the wrath of God for our sins, where he would be in our place, our substitute, that great sacrificial lamb. He knew that's where he was headed. But because he was fully God and fully human, his humanity side was horrified, was drawing back, was crying out, It says he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Jesus cried out to his father who was more than able to save him from death but did not in order to save us from eternal destruction. The scriptures tell us in Matthew that Jesus cried out three times with such intensity that as a human being, he sweat great drops of blood. That's a real medical condition. You can look it up. If you are under such intense pressure with fear and angst, you can have capillaries burst and blood begin to come out in your sweat. He sweat drops of blood as he cried out, Oh, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. His godness knew why he'd come. This was the very reason for which he'd come. Nevertheless, what was the cup that Jesus was agonizing over. Well, you see both in the Old Testament and the New Testament that reference to the cup and God is always reference to the justice and holy wrath of God against sin. And Jesus knew that the nails in his hands and feet and the the thorns on his head, that was not the worst of what this was about to be. Jesus knew he was about to, on the cross, step in between us and a holy God and bear the weight of God's punishment and wrath against sin and drink it dry for us 
so that we could be forgiven. That's why he took on flesh. That's how he became the source of eternal salvation. And so that's why he's not just, listen to me, he's not just one of many ways that you could choose to be made right with God. I know we live in a day of choice. The cereal aisle has a hundred cereals. Great. But there's not a hundred ways to be made right with God, my friend. I know we live in a pluralistic day where it sounds so arrogant to say there's one way. But I have to say what the Bible says. Because you need to understand the reason there's only one way and Jesus is the only way is because there's no one else who did this for you. There's no one else who could do this for you. Muhammad was a man and he's dead and he didn't rise again. Whoever started Hinduism and all that, they're dead. On and on and on we could go. Jesus is the only one who did for you as the God man what no one else could do and that's why he was able to say, Not, I know the way and I'll tell you about it. Not, I know some truth and I'll point you there. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And oh, how we should thank God that there's any way. Jesus is the wonder of Christmas That's why all the wonder of Christmas is centered around Jesus, Jesus. So as we close, I hope there's a question that's been stirring in every one of you. Okay, Brad. So how does this eternal salvation become my salvation? Well, he answers it right there in Hebrews 5, 9. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Oh, if you're getting tired and you're about to check out, don't do it yet. Stay with me. Don't make the mistake that human beings just readily make. We are so hardwired, default setting for works, achievement, earning, tell me what to do. The author is not talking about you obeying the Ten Commandments. I hear people say, well, I try to obey the Ten Commandments. Great. It makes for a better society. It will not get you into heaven. Because you can't obey them perfectly. They were given to show you how you fall short. He's not talking about obey the Ten Commandments. And he's not talking about any religious list or system or boxes to check. In fact, he's talking about Jesus' command to believe that he is who he says he is. And that he did what only he could do. There's a situation in John 6 where Jesus gives us the answer himself. The crowd asked this very same kind of question in John 6. The crowd said this, what must we do to do the works that God requires? And Jesus didn't point them to the Ten Commandments. Jesus didn't give them a list and say, work hard on this. Get going on this. I'll cheer you on. Nope. Jesus said this, the works of God is this. To believe in him who God sent. Faith alone in Jesus. Faith alone in Jesus alone. Plus nothing. Eternal salvation is by faith. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. If you believe and put your trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus... 
He will become your eternal source of salvation because his death on the cross will become payment for your sins that were standing between you and a holy God. And then his righteousness becomes your righteousness in the sight of God, all as a free gift. That's the wonder of Christmas. So let me ask you, what are you trusting in today? What are you trusting in today? Is it some kind of religion or system or checklist that's really all about what you're trying to do for God to please him and earn his favor or be good enough? Or is it a personal relationship with the wonder of Christmas, Jesus? That you're trusting in what he has done, not what you're trying to do. I'd like you to bow your heads with me as I close. And I want you to think about this some more. A lot of gifts are going to be exchanged this next week, and I'm glad. I enjoy it. I like giving gifts to my loved ones. But right now, I'm asking you to think about the greatest gift of all, the free gift of forgiveness and peace with God that could be yours today by putting your faith in Jesus and believing that he alone is the eternal source of salvation. If you'd like to receive this free gift, you don't need to put money in our offering box. You don't need to shake my hand. You don't need to be baptized. You don't have to join this church. All you need to do is pray this simple prayer after me. Dear God, I confess that I'm a sinner. You see my innermost thoughts, my ugliest parts, and yet you sent Jesus to die for me. I believe that Jesus did what no one else could do to become the source of eternal salvation. And right now, I surrender control of my life to you. And I receive him and submit to him as my Savior, Lord, and King. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.